0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Disruptive Voices. My name is Nina Kwosh, and today I'm joined by two fantastic guests, Professor Ilan Kelman and Dr. Marina Romanello, to talk about the links between climate and health. Ilan is a professor of disasters and health at the UCL Institute for Risk and Disaster Reduction and the UCL Institute for Global Health. And Marina is a research fellow at the UCL Institute for Global Health, and she's also a member of the Lancet Countdown team. Hi, both, and thank you very much for joining me today.
1: Thanks for the opportunity.
0: So to start, let's provide a bit of context. In your research, what does the intersection of climate and health look like?
1: Well, thanks so much. I mean, for me, I try and connect two huge areas, health and disasters, which is the point behind my joint appointment with the two institutes. And it's so exciting being able to bring them together and look for bridges, look for themes. So one of the big themes which connects health and disasters is absolutely climate change. Other ones include migration, diplomacy, also different groups, whether it's people with disabilities or gender. And for me, the key is really integration. We need to break down the barriers. We need to stop the separation which climate change has created itself, separating itself from so many other topics, and bring them together with many, many disciplines. One example which integrates climate change is actually diplomacy, which I'd mentioned. So I do a lot of work on disaster diplomacy and health diplomacy, which these days is like vaccine diplomacy, COVID-19 diplomacy, and it does include climate diplomacy really saying whether trying to deal with these processes, stop disasters, deal with climate change, improve health, whether that does or does not bring together people, countries, or organizations. Geographically, I work especially on islands and in the polar regions. So I currently have one funded project from a consortium called the Belmont Forum, which is examining local responses to health impacts of climate change. And our two locations are Alaska, and the Caribbean to compare them. Another one on which I work with Marina is Lancet Countdown for climate change and health. And I'm sure that she can provide plenty of detail regarding that.
2: Hi Nina, and first of all, thank you so much again for the opportunity to be here chatting with you. And to answer your question, the Lancet Countdown is an international research collaboration that nucleates research from all around the world to try to explore the human dimension of climate change and the health dimension of climate change in particular. The core of the research that I do is all about developing metrics, developing really hard numerical or qualitative indicators of how climate change is affecting our health and how our response is determining the health profile of the world. And we develop these indicators to track the world as it's moving from climate change as a threat to human health and how the actions against climate change can act as an opportunity to improve health worldwide. Our research is really interdisciplinary. It nucleates researchers from all around the world to look at the health impacts of climate change, adaptation for health, and how our actions to mitigate climate change are helping to improve health and delivering those health co-benefits of climate change mitigation and how the economic profile of the world is moving towards a healthier economy or not. Finally, we also explore the political and public engagement in acknowledging that climate change is at its very core a public health problem. So it's really nucleates experts that range from earth scientists, meteorologists, health scientists, economists, social scientists, really, really interdisciplinary.
0: Thanks, Marina. It's actually a very interesting approach because climate change is often framed as an environmental issue. And typically when I speak to my parents, sometimes their reaction is, why would I change my behavior to save the planet? But we're seeing this framing sort of change more and more. And in the 2020 Lancet countdown report, actually, I saw a statistic that really caught my attention, which is that between 2018 and 2019, the coverage of health and climate change in the media, has increased by 96% worldwide. And actually, there is more coverage now about climate and health than about climate change itself, which is quite striking and quite encouraging. So could you talk about in your experience, whether it's in academic circles or the response that you get from the public, what does that shift of framing and shift of perception bring to the table?
2: To us, it's really one of the crucial things is that that understanding, as you very clearly pointed out, that climate change is, in essence, a human problem. For many, many years, we've known about climate change and we've known we have to do something about it since the 60s. So this is not a new problem. And we still have not managed to mitigate climate change to the pace that we need to. Our emissions are still leading to accumulated CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere And will lead us to a world that today we know will be, in the current trajectory, around three degrees warmer than pre-industrial times, when we know that 1.5 is already pretty dangerous. So we're not really hitting that mark. Probably one of the reasons why this delay has happened is because for a very long time, we thought that climate change was a problem that affected wildlife, that affected polar bears, that would affect us perhaps in 2100. But... Our evidence and science has now shown us that climate change is actually affecting us today. It's affecting our health currently, it's affecting our children, and will determine the health profile of these and future generations. And the extent to which that is affected, the, the extent to which we let that define our health, really depends on our actions, both through mitigation and through adaptation. I know Ilan has done great work on on kind of shifting that understanding from environmental hazards to impacts. and. That understanding and that realization of climate change as a current problem that is impacting us today and our children, and it's not a future hazard, it's really crucial to get people to act on it and to shift the perception of climate change
1: at a global level. And Marina's approach is actually so powerful and may actually help to circumvent the challenges that you mentioned, Nina, regarding your parents. Maybe we should be communicating this is not about saving the planet, but exactly as Marina is saying, it's about us. It's about saving ourselves. So everything that we need to do to tackle climate change helps ourselves in so many other ways. And if we just let climate change run away, then we are going to see absolutely appalling, really devastating mortality from heat and humidity, as well as other possible impacts. So that whole concept that Marina just said, this is about us, this helps us, this makes a difference for us. Maybe we should be communicating much more Let's deal with ourselves. Let's deal with those around us. And we need to work to deal with climate change and to solve the problems, particularly the fundaments, in order to have healthier, safer, better lives, better quality of life, better jobs for ourselves and for the future generations.
0: There's definitely an increasing sense of urgency and threat to future generations. But if I can take a step back and pick up on the idea of disaster, the way I think that most people understand it or the way that we use it normally would be to refer to a very sudden, very catastrophic event. Typically, we would think of earthquakes and tsunamis, etc. To what extent does this concept apply to climate change, which is a much slower and somewhat predictable process?
1: Completely the same, actually. It is so intriguing that the public concept of disasters is contrary to what decades of disaster-related research policy and practice have indicated. So disasters happen not because of the earthquake and not because of the tsunami, not because of the flood, not because of weather. Disasters happen because we build infrastructure which cannot withstand these natural forces, even though we know how to. And we have so many places where a tornado whips through not much happens or where an earthquake shakes half a country and not much happens. Conversely, we then get earthquakes and tornadoes which kill hundreds or thousands of people. And therefore the disaster is happening. So it's our choices, not what the environment does, or too often we force people to live in vulnerable places. We force people to live in vulnerable ways. We remove resources and options for them, which means that the disaster occurs. We avoid the phrase natural disaster because disasters are not natural. And this applies directly to climate change. Climate change, by definition, is a change in the climate, which sort of makes sense. Or climate being weather statistics means a change in weather statistics. Weather is simply the environment. We could deal with weather if we wanted to, but some people cannot afford the jobs, the infrastructure, the clothes, the opportunities to deal with weather. And so weather changes, and yes, disasters happen because we're not ready. Now, the exception of, it, as I sort of alluded to earlier, is heat and humidity, in that what climate change is doing to heat and humidity is pushing it into regimes where we cannot survive outdoors. So this is a lethality. This is a terrifying aspect. And this is awful, awful weather created by climate change leading to a disaster. But, you know, floods, storms, droughts, landslides, all these other weather related aspects, we could deal with them if we want to. Climate change is affecting them substantively, but we can't deal with them anyway. So it's really hard to pin the disaster on climate change. These disasters are not natural. They come from us, not the environment.
0: How do we attribute the effects on health and lives to a single cause, whether it's a very sudden disaster, whether it's climate change, which is taking place over many, many years. Marina, you mentioned earlier that you were using some metrics and measures. Could you expand on that?
2: I will kind of echo what Ilan said. We have to know that the hazard came from the climate, but the health outcome is a compound of that hazard plus our preparedness, our adaptation, how we're exposed to it, how vulnerable we are, and how we manage to reduce those vulnerabilities exposure such that the outcome does not lead to the tragedy and catastrophe of the health impacts. We have very, very good scientific, very sound studies called detection attribution studies that tell us to which extent an extreme weather event is attributable to climate change. It says how unlikely would have been that a heat wave, like the one that we've seen this year in USA and, and in Canada, would have happened if there hadn't been an influence of climate change. And we know that that heat wave was practically impossible without a climate change scenario. That has been quite well studied and we have the statistics to determine that. Today, the death toll could probably have been avoided we would have probably had a much lower death toll had we had prepared those populations to cope with that extreme of heat and had health systems adapted to extremes of heat with early warning systems, with identification of vulnerable populations, with a sound response system to protect health. Attributing those deaths to climate change, we can attribute the event to climate change and we can attribute the death that happened to that event. But it's very important to keep that in mind those tests, much of them would have been avoided had we had a good adaptation preparedness and response system in place.
0: So what can we do to better prepare for that event? And I'm thinking in particular of protecting the most vulnerable among us.
2: One of the key challenges we're seeing is that we are not really identifying those vulnerable populations. The WHO does these health surveys where they try to track to which extent countries are doing health vulnerability assessments for climate change. In these assessments, countries are meant to identify vulnerable populations, identify which are the biggest risks that those populations would be exposed to and help pin down who the groups at high risk are so that you can protect their health in the event of a weather event or an extreme event uh, posed by climate change. And what we're seeing is that those vulnerability assessments are being carried out by less than 50% of countries And that by and large, they're really, really underfunded. So they're not being carried at the rate that they should be. They're not being developed frequently enough or with enough coverage to be able to really identify those populations at risk. The same with national adaptation plans. Countries are really, really underfunded and they're not prioritising national adaptation plans for health. So that is a crucial component of what public health can do to avoid the worst health outcomes of climate change to be able to strengthen their adaptation response and the identification of vulnerable peoples,
1: And that makes so much sense. Just really strong policy and practice ways forward. Really, it comes down to who is most vulnerable, in what ways are they vulnerable, but particularly why are they vulnerable? A lot of this information we have, or it's easy to find, but just the systems, the political systems are not supporting us to discover and analyze that material in order to move forward with policy and action. One unfortunate aspect among many is that our health systems today cannot even deal with current issues irrespective of climate change. As soon as we start talking about the climate crisis and the climate emergency, we're divorcing ourselves from what we're doing to the climate change. We're trying to sort of push it onto this wide, global, ephemeral aspect, saying, well, yes, someone has to do something about the climate, as opposed to us, in terms of being a behavior crisis and an emergency of our values, which lead to climate change. So this really strikes at the heart of vulnerability causing the problems, long-standing, chronic, continuing issues, such as health systems, which are inadequate to deal with typical health needs. And we see that in the UK all the time, unfortunately then we get the added layers on top of that changing weather that we're not ready to deal with or a pandemic. And it's not surprising that we saw near collapse, if not some aspects of collapse within the health systems.
0: This might be a bit controversial, but I was wondering if there are any positive effects of climate change on health. Not to minimise the negative aspects, of course, but I just thought maybe it could put things in perspective.
1: From the beginning of climate change being a major international issue, some people were talking about winners and losers, and this was particularly pioneered by Michael Glantz. This is not saying we want human-caused climate change, this is not justifying it, but in fact, in the definition of adaptation from the United Nations bodies responsible for dealing with climate change, the definition of adaptation is exploiting beneficial opportunities. So what you raise, Nina, is absolutely appropriate and absolutely apt. One example is despite the horror which heat-related deaths are going to bring to us, it seems likely that cold-related deaths will decrease. Also, people are different. Some like warmer temperatures, some prefer colder temperatures. One strong advantage what climate change has brought to us is a lot more awareness about some of the health issues. And a lot more appropriate measures to seek long-term sustainability, both social and environmental and their interactions, rather than saying, oh, whatever, things will happen and we're not going to worry about it. So, despite a lot of the rhetoric, despite a lot of the hyperbole surrounding climate change and its impacts, to some degree it has been advantageous in focusing on many of the issues Marina mentioned, like health, but also thinking about wider environmental conceptualizations. Ironically, some of the worst hit places by climate change, such as in the Arctic, many of the peoples there reap the rewards because they say this will make it more accessible, this will bring tourism, this will permit resource extraction much more readily. Are those good? Well, obviously not necessarily, but on the other hand, who are we sitting in a world city with our privileges, who are we to tell them that they're completely wrong and they should be thinking 400 years down the line, not just 40. So it's hard and it's a balance. And I think your question is why we should avoid foisting everything on climate change. Oh, this is good. This is bad. This is advantageous. This is problematic. Let's look more to ourselves, our behavior, our values, our actions, our approaches and say, what do we want for ourselves and those around us now and future generations? And I would hope that it's healthier, safer lives and livelihoods, more fulfilling lives and livelihoods, and ways to say that no matter what the environment does, no matter what we do to the environment, we can take advantages from it without destroying ourselves or the ecologists.
0: Marina, would you like to share your perspective?
2: Yes. Look, I think, as
1: Ilan already highlighted,
2: the question that you're raising is hugely important. It's true that there will be some small wins from climate change. We see it, for example, uh, one of the key things that we're often faced with when we talk about climate change and its impacts on food systems is a very, very huge concern. But there's a small benefit from climate change. A, in very cold countries, the warmer temperatures might help uh, crop production. And There's the cold CO2 fertilizing effects. That means when you have more CO2 concentration in the atmosphere, then plants absorb more of that CO2 and therefore in their photosynthesis, they produce more mass. So it would have a fertilizing effect that increases crop productivity. Um, And that's an argument that we're faced with all the time. The reason why we don't cling on to that much is because we know, and there's very robust studies that say that in the whole balance, even when you take into account fertilising effect from CO2, even when you take into account warmer temperatures favouring crop productivity in certain countries, the overall balance is pretty negative. Much more so when you include extremes of precipitation that damages crops, other extreme events. So what we're seeing is that while there might be small winds, the overall balance is negative. But it's important to acknowledge that. It's important to understand that saying that climate change is a threat does not exclude those small winds. Because they will be there and we have to understand that they will exist even if the overall balance is negative. So it's important not to put everything in black and white because it is, as any complex system, a complex topic. But probably just going back to the science and to the whole objective balances of what the data is showing us is um, the right approach, I
0: would say thanks for coming with me on this tangent, but I think we still agree that we should try to limit climate change as much as possible.
1: Yeah, and it's not a tangent, because as Marina said, people raise it all the time. Even where there are benefits, that does not justify us rapidly and substantively changing the environment. Mm. So irrespective of the balance, it really is a fundamental ethos. We're one species and one planet. Don't we want to do better?
0: Of course. So on the international stage, negotiations and coordination on the topic of keeping climate under control are notoriously difficult for many reasons, including who's to blame, who's to take action and responsibility. There is an advantage to letting others act first. But also, like we said, Different people, depending on geographical context, depending on their social and economic situations, will have very, very different outcomes in the next 20, 50, 100 years. What are your suggestions for navigating this complex issue? What we find is that
2: with climate change, there's been loads and lots of discussions about exactly what you mentioned, responsibility, ecological debt, carbon debt. And this talk about who should go faster, who should go first, and who should bear the burden, particularly because we still have very industrialized countries that have really enjoyed a highly carbonized development with lots of benefits to health, including the benefits that our past 200 years of development have provided to our health at the expense of the environment. So that's undeniable. We're today at a situation in which climate change is pretty out of control, and we're in a very critical position. We really, really need to mitigate climate change. Even with our best adaptation, we still will see higher risks from climate change impacts of health unless we rapidly mitigate. We're seeing that the highly industrialized, highly technological countries are probably doing that transition based on technology to kind of lower carbon economies, to uh, renewable energies, not as rapidly as they should have, but they're still going through that transition. Whereas there are many other countries that are still developing and growing their economies based on carbon intensive resources. It's important to understand that if the whole world does not go down this path, if we don't allow for all of the countries that are still growing their economies and that still need to grow their economies for their health, for their well-being, to do that in a carbon efficient way and in a low carbon economy, the bottom line is always the same. It has to be done in a fair way, in a way that everyone can reach the same end point together. And otherwise we all fail.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's such a good encapsulation of all the issues and it really shows the depth and breadth of the difficulties and opportunities we face. I'd sort of throw in that we've actually been at this for quite a while with no real success. So when they talk about the potential meeting of the UK, they call it COP26. We're talking annual, actually often not always annual meetings. So 26 means we've come a long, long way. Same with major scientific reports where over the next year, they'll be releasing the sixth assessment and the assessments are usually five, six, seven years apart. So this has been going on a long, long time. Maybe we need to think about approaches which are different and actually question whether this should be done in such a top-down, major international manner, because it clearly is not working. It's also very much a concern that a lot of the focus and attention then goes to climate change being isolated from many of the other international negotiations, international coordination, justice and equity and interaction issues. Even if we solved climate change today and everything was fine tomorrow, we would still have plastics, which ironically come from fossil fuels. We would still have nanoparticles we would still have mass species extinctions and devastating ecosystem destruction, as well as the underlying causes of all these issues, which are basically over-exploitation of people and resources. Human slavery, arms trade, oppression, sexism, racism, discrimination, all of those continue. All of those are absolutely fundamental to the causes behind climate change, and all of them would continue irrespective of climate change. So it really is recognizing that theoretically, why is climate change different? Why is it separate at these international levels? But from the reality, from what we've experienced, we're well over a generation in terms of action or attempted action, we're well over two generations in terms of knowledge, and still we're not there. Should we be thinking about something different?
0: So what's the role of science in all this? And I suppose not just science, but research in various fields. How do we all work together to contribute to this debate and hopefully make progress finally?
1: I mean, fundamentally, science and research are about trying to get it as right as possible. Is there a fundamental truth? Well, that's one of the great philosophical questions, which I guess we're not going to resolve today or through climate change. But ultimately, we do need evidence, we do need facts, we do need the philosophy, we do need to know what's going on and what people perceive and what people are experiencing. Science provides that. It all has to be focused on serving society. So we have to take the knowledge, the evidence, the so-called facts, the information, and apply that for constructive, appropriate, effective action, which also includes policy. So the role to me of the scientists and the role of science is to serve society for climate change within these wider contexts. is to try and do so much better than we've done so far.
0: Marina, what would you say is our shared role?
2: Look, I think science has come a really long way. We have a very, very good evidence base. What I think the key is now is integrating that very scientific, sometimes very technical and obscure data in a way that can be understood, can be interpreted, and can be used by policymakers and by the general public, who is so hugely important because it's all of us. So getting the science out there in a way that can be consumed and informed decision-making, to me, is the biggest challenge. And that requires unsealing climate change and health and getting experts from multiple different areas to talk to each other such that we can understand not only the health impacts of climate change, but also How that affects our livelihoods, how that affects our jobs, our economies, our education, our mental health, our well-being, our infrastructure and the places that we live. So getting people to talk to each other, multidisciplinary research, which is sometimes spoken a lot about, but seldom implemented uh, in a very cohesive way. And getting the information in a way that can be used and is useful to policymakers, I think is the biggest contribution that we can make now that
1: the core of the research and the evidence is available. Well, what's Countdown doing to change the world?
2: I think one of the interesting things that is currently happening, we're seeing that more and more governments are starting to produce indicators on climate change and health, and we're seeing observatories popping up all over the place, Uh, observatories that build many times on landscape indicators, which is quite interesting in that kind of setting that blueprint. And more than just saying, well, we've actually inspired this, because I think that's only partially true, apart from saying, well, this has been our contribution, I think it talks a lot the extent to which countries are starting to try to monitor objectively something that they know is their own responsibility. So the fact that countries are starting to measure vulnerability to heat, impacts of heat waves, and acknowledge the incredible mortality that we have currently from those extreme events, such that they can act against the evidence and against the numbers and monitor progress, that to me is a pretty big win, just the intention. It has been a topic that has been greatly ignored or or at least not addressed properly in many, many countries. I'm talking about, I don't know, uh, we're seeing it in Peru, we're seeing it in Argentina. And the fact that everyone is now at least aware of the fact that we have to start tracking climate change impacts on health and our progress towards mitigating it is pretty huge.
1: So I think, Marina, then the inspiration is there, but also, as you say, it's more than that. It's about facilitating the process and legitimizing it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Lancet Countdown started with a fairly focused core group, was definitely global and has maintained that. But then the ripples go out. We get the spin-offs at the national level and through the connections on other continents, who then say, yeah, you know what? We do need to think about smaller scales. We do need to say, well, it's all fine for an international journal to publish it and for an international team to be producing it. But Australia is doing its own report, mm-hmm. and it's perfectly fair to say, well, what about Australia? How can health workers in Australia support this, and what does health mean to Australia? So a lot of it, as you're saying, so you're right. It goes far beyond the indicators. It goes far beyond the report. It's inspiring, facilitating, legitimizing, and saying, you know what? This can be done. It can have a positive, constructive impact on policy and practice. Plus, we're generating much-needed new knowledge.
0: Can I ask, what's the breadth of expertise in the Countdown and in authors? Because a lot of what we've discussed today touches on ethics and philosophy and what do we want from humanity beyond these problems that are really small on the evolutionary scale. What's the place of philosophy, for instance, in the discussion?
2: We do have a lot of social scientists and political scientists that do focus their work on studying human behaviour human perceptions, and how you drive change by um, modifying, for example, the way we understand climate change. So we have physicists, medics, uh, social political scientists, economists, epidemiologists, climate modelers. We have really a bit of everything. And I think that's really the only way in which you can approach a problem like this. We need to understand that climate change is here, is now, and it's a health problem.
0: Well, hopefully we manage to do that. But in the meantime, thank you so much to both of you for joining me today. It has been really interesting. Thanks
1: for the opportunity.
0: Thank you, Nina. This episode of Disruptive Voices was presented by myself, Nina Quash, and produced by the UCL Grand Challenges team. Our guests today were Dr. Marina Romanello and Professor Ilan Kalman. Music is by David Seste. If you'd like to hear more on this topic, check out the first episode of the Public Health Disrupted Podcast. For more episodes of Disruptive Voices, visit UCL Minds Podcasts or follow us on Twitter at Grand Challenges.